Sunday's experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost and how Our special guest today is Ben Roden Ben is a former amateur football player for West Brunswick But after five concussions in five years He hung up the boots at the end of 2017 We're going to chat to Ben about his first-hand experiences of concussion And we're going to couple that conversation with a chat About Malcolm Gladwell's take on concussion in American football I'm going to preface this conversation by briefly indulging Malcolm Gladwell's work on concussion in the NFL. So the latest episode of his podcast, Revisionist History, is called The Burden of Proof. Kind of really follows up his 2009 New Yorker piece called Offensive Play, How Different Are Dogfighting and Football? So I guess that his central point is that there's a general refusal in the NFL to accept the the evidence of concussion, the obvious health effects, Um that it's having on the people that are playing NFL. And essentially his argument that is if this was something else, we wouldn't look at it the same way. Um, I think he compared it to coal miners in the 20th century um, and the impacts they were having and the fact that it took us like 50 years to go from having evidence to actually believing that evidence and making a, a real change. So, Ben, you had a fairly severe uh well, severe five incidences of concussion in amateur football. Uh, do you want to talk us through where this this all started? Okay, so it's worth noting that I'm quite lucky compared to some footballers in that I didn't actually have my first concussion until I was well into adulthood, so it's not like it's something I've had to grapple with during junior football. Mm-hmm. Um, two of the interviews of some of the audio work I'm doing at the moment are dealing with that at the moment which I should preface I'm obviously I'm working on a audio podcast about this sort of stuff so mm-hmm. um and they they had to deal with it from the age of 15 onwards which I guess developmentally for the brain it's the same thing like with alcohol to the, a young person's brain you know um I imagine I imagine head knocks at that age can mess with your brain's development as well so my first knock was at 21 and it was pretty simple just barreling into the bottom of a contest hitting heads and knees on the ground someone came in standing up and I just knocked my head up and played out the game felt fine delayed onset felt fuzzy driving home um I couldn't really work out what it was and then my dad pointed out like four or five days later it probably was concussion and then got up for the game moved on and so I guess like building from that base though it kind of got progressively worse so I stopped playing in 2013, moved to Melbourne 2014, started playing at West Brunswick in 2015. And then coming towards finals, I probably changed position. I'd gone from a wingman half-back role to playing as a small defensive forward. So I was probably in more contested situations on a regular basis. And so coming into finals, I found myself probably exposed more to head knocks. So I caught a couple, caught another delayed reaction concussion in the last game of the season, got up fine for the following week. And then we played Hawthorne Amateur Football Club, and that's when the problems probably started kicking in. So in that game, I got an elbow off the ball, and then I also got a hip to the head, um, both both probably malicious and out of the spirit of the game. But in finals football, umpires not wanting to be too bold, nothing really happened of note to those players. They still played out the game, and I definitely felt groggy after both of those hits but I also had probably seven touches for the quarter and kicked two goals one in probably one of my best quarters of football so no one was really concerned because at the end of the day I looked like I was moving fine and I I addressed this with the coaching staff and they said look if you feel bad come off as simple as that but I mean they said you you look fine you're moving fine you know where you are but I didn't feel right so I came off after that game and I really really struggled and um I guess I got a couple of I did get hit in the head a couple more times but I throughout that final series but nothing as bad as that but that was that was probably a really I guess like a prognosticator for some for some of what was to come I guess like because in the following year in 2016 I actually just got concussed from someone kicking a football to my head on the mark which is like far more 
minor, like innocuous, yeah. innocuous, and it wasn't as bad a concussion as that that one, like where I had to manage my symptoms probably through the entire final series. Just to like, even when I was fine to play, I was like still wary of like, you know, what would another knock do? But like this one, I got over quickly, and I thought I was fine. But in retrospect, the fact that it was so innocuous kind of um, caught me off guard. So I guess. In all of those instances up to that point, they they weren't really injuries created by me being particularly dangerous, but they were created just by irresponsible other people's irresponsibility or just clumsiness in the case of someone kicking a football mm. into your head. Um, but 2017 was really interesting because the last two sort of head knocks I received, one of them wasn't a knockout per se, but I started frontlining the ball a bit more because a coach had advised me that I was going inside on so I wasn't actually I was getting pushed off the contest too easily so I started body lining the ball which is probably for someone I mean I'm 180 centimeters and 70 kilos so whilst I'm fairly strong for my size I'm probably not in a position where I get to do those kinds of things um and then I do that and then I did that in a game and I pretty much nearly nearly got knocked out in fact in retrospect I may have been out for like half a second without even realizing it but I got back up again felt fine passed all the tests so I as far as I know I didn't feel anything painful but like because it was such a big everyone said it was a big knock and I remember the knock but I don't like I don't actually feel I didn't feel it was a painful knock or anything like that so I always wonder if there's a what if attached because of what comes after and then I guess four weeks later I um uh, it was my 51st game, so I actually I got I got a corky in my 50th, and so I came back for a prelim um, in a thirds game for my 51st, which is really funny because um, it was probably it, I was really doomed from the start because like I had sp- swelling in the knee from the cork, so I got up for that game just and was moving well, got a couple touches in the first five five minutes, missed one from just outside 50, so I felt good. Um, and then I ran in, someone, a ruckman came in with the ball at a contest. Two or three of my teammates went to tackle him. I went in to help help stop it, and he was barraging through. Elbow straight into the head. I was out before I hit the ground, arms up in the air, out for a minute. And then um, that's – I am where I – I guess that's mm. that's it. I went, went to hospital. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So – when you had so the very first one that was in a final, and you say you kind of you didn't really come off, what sort of testing were they actually doing? Was it AFL oh, not the first one, but the third? You know that that most recent because I guess that's mm-hmm. when they started becoming more recent. So, mm-hmm. but in terms of what the testing that's actually being performed at amateur level, what was what were they doing to you when this was happening? Uh, they looked at my eyes and how they were moving. So where the you know whether there was any blood floating around my eyes they asked me you know they asked ran all the questions like the scat test where you know who are you where you are what day is it um how far are we up by or like you know like stuff that i was across like even though i'm a pretty sharp person i'd say generally in terms of my my thinking so i feel like i could pass those tests in my sleep to be honest like they're not actually to me they're not difficult questions to pass like i think anyone could pass them if you're like if you're even remotely with it and still be concussed, but like I could part those sorts of questions were asked of me. So, and I was walking in a straight line, like probably trying to convince myself as well that I was moving. Okay. I guess like, I feel like there was no, there was no, there wasn't as many protocols then, but I do feel like, I do feel like there was a best interest at heart approach. Like they said I could come off if I wanted to. So I don't think like whilst there wasn't a strong hand, it was like there was enough of a, like, if you don't feel right, don't play, like, that that kind of thing. So I never felt like I was being pressured into anything. Yeah. Do you feel like there should have been a stronger hand, though? Maybe in retrospect, but, mm. like, I don't think... I think it's difficult when, say, if you... If you're moving... If all your body mechanics and everything suggests the contrary and it's something where it's just your internal perception and you're trying to relay that to someone sometimes it's difficult to communicate that if you're moving really well so the fact is no one got a sense of how groggy I was because I just got up and worked through those moments individually so no one pulled me off no one 
saw those instances because they were mostly off the ball or if they did, I got up and took my kick afterwards and, you know, hush away the trainers, it's a final, you know, that kind of thing. So no one really got a chance to probably assess me in the moment to see how I was. But I, yeah, that's an interesting one. I've, I don't think like, I don't bear any ill will to the trainers because I have a lot of trust in them and they've pulled me, they've tested me more thoroughly in the future on different things. So I feel like in that moment, that was my, that was as much me failing to communicate, willfully failing to communicate certain things because I desperately wanted to stay out there at the same time. So, Mike, I guess the next question is, if your attitude, if you had the attitude or the information that you have now, would you have acted differently in the moment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and come off straight away. Oh, yeah, no doubt. It's interesting because there's a study of Ballarat football, community footballers or amateur footballers in 2014, and they spoke to them about this, and they'd say, I would never go as far as willfully deceiving a trainer, but I would go or willfully telling a doctor that I feel fine when I don't. I would never go as far as doing that, but there's footballers who would go as far as doing that. In my case, all I did was is probably just get a bit nervous about communicating the full extent of my symptoms and stop short, but I never lied. I just said, I don't, I just asked, I'm not sure how I feel. Do I look like I'm moving okay? And they're like, yeah, you look fine, but if you feel bad, come off. And I was like, oh, I'll just give it five or 10 minutes and I'll be fine. You know, um, I played out the game, but like, then I felt terrible afterwards. So So when you say you felt terrible afterwards, describe that. What are you, what are you missing out on? Or what are you not perceiving that you normally would? What are your eyes doing? Uh, it's probably not so much your eyes. You do feel you feel do you do feel heavy. You feel really distracted, like you can't focus. Mm. So, I was working at the bike shop at a bike shop at the time, and my paperwork for the next three days afterwards was out. All my invoicing entry, data entry, nearly every single one. No matter how much I went over it, was like off by like someone had to go through and redo everything pretty much. Like for nearly everything I did at work the following three days. Um, like I was functioning and selling stuff and like, you know, I wasn't losing count of money, but when it came to like multi-numbered tasks and stuff like that, I just couldn't do it. It was like in retrospect, I didn't even realize until someone pulled me up on it, like Mm. a day or two after I was starting to feel better or marginally better. And then they were like, you realize you've stuffed all of this up and it was like, oh no. But yeah, that was like, that was the first telltale sign. The other sign was, is like, I was doing timekeeping for the game afterwards after I got concussed and I did that okay but like I just had this real sense of cloudiness though I do remember Tom Barras getting seven kicked on him by Tex Walker in the game at the same time so this is what I mean like I have a really good recall so like I could recall those kinds of details even whilst I'm concussed but I did just feel like super fuzzy and cloudy like I just wanted to go drive home and look at a white wall and not like not like have to like focus on anything other than something really simple but at the same time I was alert and aware of everything around me so it's not like concussions just like this like memory thing or like recall though that's like that's the thing that people go to I think for me concussions much more associated with a sense of cloudiness and spatial awareness and the things that are going on around me if that makes sense yeah yeah. so have you looked at the contents of the AFL concussion test yeah, I have. And do you feel like knowing what's in there, that would have been helpful in your situations? Would it have identified you as concussed or would you have still had to like take that decision yourself? Uh, I think I think if you are paired with someone who's medically trained to be super sharp on that stuff, then yes. But like someone who has just a general awareness, there are sometimes things I think that can slip through to the keeper. So that's what I mean. Like a trainer... At an amateur club's not necessarily going to like pick up on like those sorts of questions unless they're particularly attuned to like an individual circumstances. That's why club doctors at the elite level are so important because they know what their players um, capable of as a baseline measure as a baseline measurement, and then they can work around it. So whereas like a someone and I probably took advantage of that a little bit because I didn't want to come off, mm. <laughs> and so um, which is like you know terrifying to consider now but like I mean I can't think of it it's really it's really easy to say oh don't do it but when you're in that moment you're not you know sometimes you you make stupid decisions because you think oh 
there's a good there's a good chance of something special happening at the end of it. So it might be worth it. Mm. It's not, but it feels like it at the time. Yeah, we've all. But I mean, my I've had concussion in hockey, but the most notable example I've had of a concussion that stood out was we we had a final that we were playing in and. Our one of our probably best two or three players got a concussion with about 25 minutes left. We were down 1 0. And he went back on the ground and was basically, it was kind of overlooked, like the potential severity of this. And hockey and concussion are not necessarily, it's not an issue like it is in football. But I just remember seeing him on the bus on the way home. And we were just, he was sat on the back row and he just literally for about 15 minutes stared down the center aisle with his eyes glazed over and just literally was not seeing... He was essentially seeing stars. Yeah. And so my question for you, and I kind of link this example to your experience, should we be doing more in a first aid sense to educate people at clubs so that we have better testing for concussion so that that doesn't happen even if it is a final? Yeah, I think we. I think you, I think you do, but I think you're... It's really interesting to talk about the Gladwell example because you're talking about risk mitigation factors. And I think ultimately, like, I think there's more you can do to prevent the actual occurrence of concussion in the first place. So this doesn't actually have to be an issue. So I'll address that question. You can, you can ask me about how I feel about prevention as opposed to risk mitigation. But to me, those risk mitigation factors are always going to be there because at the end of the day, they're, Whilst I'm at a club that has a really good concussion policy, so we have a senior coach who will automatically give nearly all his players who have head knocks a two weeks off, so they'll automatically miss the first week of football. Um, Regardless of whether they pull up fine 20 minutes after a knock, Mm. they're going to miss the next week of football regardless. And that culture pretty much goes through all levels of football. Um, So I think... Yeah, you can. I think you can certainly develop more stringent policy, and I think that general awareness is definitely available at a lot of different clubs. But I don't think it's always. Um, I don't think it's like going to stop stop incidences like that from happening because all it takes is someone who's like, you know, you you can be head your head can be full of noise, and you can still probably find a way to like convince someone to send you out if you're not that severely concussed like there's like a gray area you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. you can exploit that gray area if you are convinced of enough of your own abilities to um sell a version of yourself for a couple of quarters of football mm. so for you and you've obviously had some fairly stringent medical checkups on your own head yes. what's your understanding of what impact this is going to have on you in a futuristic sense and when did you actually decide to pull the pin I decided to pull the pin after I got knocked out and it took me three, four weeks to get to 100% baseline Mm -hmm. and I wasn't quite at 100% baseline. I was probably at 95%, so I still wasn't doing uh, multiple direction running. Mm -hmm. And this this was during when we had non-fiction with Greeny, wasn't it, last year? Were we doing class together while this was going on? Yeah, I was doing – so I was attending class. I took the first – I think I went to the first class – three days after I got knocked out because it was a Helen Garner talk. So I was like, that's... <laughs> oh, a- I remember that. I remember you being there. And yeah. I remember you looking like really struggling to concentrate. Yeah. That was I- the first time I became aware of this. Yeah. And I was like, I was actually completely... I was... I actually was... I made an effort to be with it. And I remember lots of good parts of that talk. Mm. But like, I was ready to go home and have a nap straight away afterwards. And even though I stayed for an hour, like it was pointless. I should have just left straight afterwards. Yeah, you could tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, my actual initial recovery was really good. So... I cheated a little bit. Did, did was supposed to completely avoid screens for the first few days, but I mean the Eagles beat the Crows in the last game at at Subiaco, and Jetta kicked a couple of goals in the last quarter. So I, I snuck that onto my phone, and I was still texting people because I felt like the social aspect gets underplayed when you're recovering from a concussion because you do have to isolate yourself. So whilst not having message, not being able to communicate with people is necessary. At the same time, I think if you're someone who lives in a share house that doesn't have much social interaction, you actually need some kind of reminder that there's people mm. out there in the world. So I did my best to follow that. But then once I I got walking within a few days and I was walking like seven or eight kilometers a day, like doing stuff, but I just couldn't get to like that full like cognitive base where I was like, you know, I guess like it took me a week to be able to write 200 words coherently. Yep. 
And then, like, I remember when I got home from the night, I got concussed, actually. Um, to, sorry to jump around, but, like, it took me half an hour to send a 30-word message to be like, I'm not right. You're not going to hear from me very much for the next couple of weeks. Like, I think I told all my lecturers, like, you're not going to hear from me in the sense that even if I come to class, I'm probably not doing work. Like, I'm just literally trying to recover at the moment. And so, but it took me half an hour to write a 50-word message. <laughs> Like I remember getting home and just like, just like yeah. typing and yeah. and like, um, so yeah, like there was just this gradual recovery. But then that final part where you get better, like where you go, I'm a hundred percent right now. I can go out and play a game of football if I wanted to. It never came. It never quite came until I went to a neurologist to get it diagnosed. And then it came a week afterwards. Like it was, it came eventually, but like mm. it took a month and it. I wasn't comfortable with it taking any longer than a month as a non-professional. If I was a professional and I was getting paid, I'd reconsider because there's like a degree of like income attached to it. It's but a fairly big carrot. Yeah. It's a fairly big carrot. Um, but even so, like, I mean, I work with words and audio, so I need to have a cognitive brain that's working. And so it concerned me that these it just I just wasn't quite 100%. Like, I just felt like I was operating at 95 for, like, two and a half weeks without really quite getting to that final point. And what was that toll on you emotionally? Clearly, it was very, very difficult physically, and it was difficult to concentrate, but what did that actually do to your emotional state? It was actually really... It was actually, in some ways... I suffer from anxiety generally, so for me, like to actually have a couple of weeks off where I was forced to do nothing and not feel guilty about it was actually surprisingly relaxing. Like I didn't feel in the sense that I was allowed to like mentally reconsider this level of busyness that I had maintained and whether it was healthy for me to be doing all this stuff in the first place, like, like in terms of general clutter and stress. So in that way, it was actually surprisingly, it was actually a really hmm. healing time, but there've been times in my life where I actually think, the after the final series in 2015 I did have a severe depressive episode which I think in my head is partially linked to not really addressing those knocks mm -hmm. in a really proper careful way whereas this time this time I was already on a treatment plan for managing um, anxiety symptoms anyway so simply treating the concussion we didn't have to do much because there was already a baseline treatment there for it and it probably just set me back a week or you know maybe a few days on that but yeah. otherwise because i had to make a conscious effort to stop doing things it actually helped rather than yeah. hindered in that case okay so to just get a little bit medical um the gladwell audio documentary centers around owen thomas who was a university of pennsylvania student footballer who essentially had repeat concussions and then took his own life as a result of cte so i just want to get you Ben, to just talk us through what CTE actually is um, and then the links between CTE and mental health. Yeah, cool. So I guess like CTE is sort of like the end point or the end game for, for multiple hits to the head. So it's not something that appears whilst you're getting concussed. It's something that comes like eight or nine years later. Um, you know, I say that really casually, but it's 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 like a real... Um, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Because I'd say like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna say because it's a real clusterfuck of a, like of a of a disease. Yeah, like yeah. it's like it's pretty much all your chickens coming home to roost after like after years of neglecting your brain. Yeah. in a sporting situation, um, that now there's a thirty percent chance that someone who's had multiple knocks to the head will get it. And obviously, when you say multiple knocks to the head, you're talking probably someone, you know, someone who's potentially, you know, it, there's no real number. It depends on impact as well. Mm. But realistically, like, I've got a pretty, like, from my set circumstances, I think I'll probably be okay without, like, yeah, yeah. without ever knowing. But, like, I think there's a pretty good – my neurologist had no real con long-term concerns yeah, yeah, for yeah. me if I stopped now. He said if the risk was in continuing rather than – um, stopping, but I guess for people like who've had 36 concussions, like John Platten, for instance, mm. or like you know Greg Williams has Diesel, had, yep. yeah, you know this is where it comes into play. So it's essentially a neuro 
so to go back to that explanation, CTE is like a neurodegenerative disease found in people like, you know, who, who just get lots of head knocks. The, the trick is, and this is the thing that they have in NFL. So in NFL, there is now essentially a brain bank of people who have had multiple hits to the head and they can autopsy their brains after death. But the problem with CTE is you obviously can't diagnose it during life. Yeah. So it has to be posthumous. Yeah, you can't diagnose it until after because the the thing is, it's like what happens is by taking all those knocks to the head, it releases like a protein called tau, and that tau protein is what essentially what fucks you up. Like it's like a poison that just goes into your brain, hmm. um, causes you to start acting erratically, you start acting depressed, you start feeling disoriented, um, symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's, or at least what are perceived as those things hmm. start coming into play. Um, a whole bunch of different like you know uh, comorbid factors like also AD, ADHD is a common one as well mm. um, so things that appear as that are linked to it and I guess like um, that tau that encephalopathy is just the tau spreading to all parts of the yeah. brain and essentially corrupting you from corrupting you from the inside out so a lot of incidences with the NFL players like include factors like, you know, domestic violence, abuse, which is not to excuse players for their individual responsibility in those factors, but brain brain failure was a contributing factor to their their misbehaviour or, mm. like, or su- suicide and other factors, as with um, the Thomas scenario. Mm. So encephalopathy is related to that. Now, in terms of whether the AFL, which is a, what they know about this, I think... There's different. There's a lot of differing opinions on it, but no one's really, you know, we don't have a brain bank to go through because no one's gone and killed themselves. Yeah, yeah. which is kind of my thing. For this to actually be undertaken as a study, you'd be taking brains from a very, very long time ago when the day, game took a different form. Yeah. Because um, it's not... Like, the attitudes change, and I think it's interesting that you say that you were dealt with differently further into your concussions than you were at the start but i i just sort of when reading all of this stuff and the gladwell stuff out of america and what they started to do and the evidence they started to gather just makes me feel like we're a long way behind see i disagree with that on the fact that i think we're a long way ahead in terms of the sport a lot of this is centered on medical treatments and the secondary and tertiary prevention of either cte or um, chronic traumatic stress or uh, depression and anxiety based off brain injuries. But the actual sport of AFL is less centred around the weaponization of the body. So the NFL, when it became professional, you saw bigger bodies. That was at the same time you had a massive peak in kind of performance-enhancing drug use across a lot of American pro sports. And you also had a, a huge increase in wealth as well. So there was a lot of a lot of social... Um, Mobility came out of the out of people's ability to play sport well, mm. and they and there was a lot of abuse of power because sport sports and sports franchises became really um, powerful money makers. So you had players getting exploited, players exploiting themselves as a social mobility tool, and then just complete ignorance of the side effects. And with that, it came at the same time as like you know high definition televisions and like popularization of professional wrestling mm. and like the violence, the increased violence in just sport and general life. And so you saw, like, head-to-head contact used to be a tactic and, like, one of the most celebrated things in NFL. Like, so it would be, like, helmet on helmet was awesome. Like, if you saw a linebacker take out a quarterback, it's like, oh, that was amazing. It would blow up on YouTube. It would blow up on the, on the highlights reels. People would laud it. You look back at it now and people are horrified because it's like, that, I can see mm. the moment when this player's life basically started ending after this hit. Yeah, and, yeah. and now you'll see it with, like, you know, there are, there are famous plays in in multiple games, it's like we actually thought that player was dead on the spot. So that's very yeah, different yeah. to AFL and how AFL centralizes itself. And we already like, conversations this year with like um, no Nui's tackle, like he didn't he didn't take uh, the duty of care to roll the player over. Like we're having conversations like that, mm. where that's that's still not a conversation. The conversation around NFL is how can the NFL still be the NFL if we don't allow players to weaponize themselves? That's that's the issue they're having. Mm. So in terms of like prevention, we're so far ahead because our game doesn't center on that and we've already moved away from like 1980s where you know people used to punch on behind the like behind the scenes and stuff there's very little of that as well which kind of goes to your point about not looking at it once it's happened it's preventing it before it happens ben yeah that's kind of like that's kind of 
where I'd lean. That's where I'd lean towards where the results are going to come from. Now, AFL does have several advantages compared to the NFL, but I'd still say there's some significant factors in terms of things like tackling technique, uh, you know, um, inconsistency in how we, in terms of our expectations of what we want our players to do when they go for the ball, um, in terms of uh, the increasing trend of players who are about you know, 190 centimetres and 90 kilos as a base baseline for what we expect from our athletes. So, you know, there's all those factors that I think come into play. And then, so it's difficult for me to say that, um, like, I think the AFL's ahead of the NFL, but I don't think the NFL's like a good, like, a good guide. Yeah, to be- if you're ahead of the worst person in the room, yeah, you ex- could be the second worst person in the room. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean yeah. you're a good. Yeah, person. exactly. That, and I'd say that's that's probably where I sit. Is that I think the AFL is far ahead in terms of its management and its mis- and its um, it does a very good job of mitigating risk of concussion after the fact. So, like, the fact is, someone like me could probably would have still played for another five seasons ten years ago. When I'm retiring at five concuss- concussions, isn't actually that bad compared to a lot of a lot of people it seems really low-key to be actually talking about it but you know you talk to someone who hasn't played the game and they go five and they're horrified so it's still like you're in that middle point where like for people in the know it's not that's not that's a good time to stop because it's not too late to like you know to avoid all the yeah consequences well to bring up another probably bad boy in the room example boxing is in terms of mitigation mm. of risk boxing actually has the best as a mandatory month off yeah so after every fight you can't you can't train full contact for 30 days as soon as you hit the deck in in the amateur levels pretty much now it's like if the fight's called off so even if you're not knocked out which is what it used to be they'll just eight count you and you're done um and yeah there's stricter and stricter rules around when you can come back and then your baseline's always checked. Um, I used to do a lot of work as a ringside doctor when I was at um, medical school. And so that's the things you kind of learn. And you can see, like, the whole trying to pull the wall over the eyes of the doctor from the person when you participate, because there is that, you know, I'm, I am a boxer, or I'm a footballer, I want to do this, this is what I want to do. And you, and you, as the medical professional, have to go in and be like, well, what's the risk here? Like, what, yeah what will actually happen if I let yeah. you go and do this? But I suppose that's like the only way you can really prevent this, I suppose, because accidents will always happen. You've got a concussion playing hockey, you're wearing a helmet, you're a goalkeeper, you get hit in the back of the head with a knee. Like There's no way you can kind of prevent that from happening other than not playing. At, at the end of the day, you, you do consent to the sport. Like There is an aspect of, of physical full-impact sports that comes with this risk. So that's why I think, like the, especially when you go back to the NFL and the Malcolm Gladwell piece where he's like, we should boycott football. Mm-hmm. It's like, well... There are areas of exploitation, that kind of thing, but then everyone is on that football field because they consent to be on that football field. Absolutely. I agree with that. It's interesting you mentioned boxing because boxing had to have some fairly significant change because one of the things I put on sort of like the podcast reading list for us was the Muhammad Ali footage of him lighting the torch at the 96 Olympics, which is like harrowing because he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which was probably, I mean, I'm so sure that he would have had CTE with the amount of knocks he had to the head. It's one of those things where it's commonly diagnosed as Alzheimer's or something like that, and it's really CTE. Um, and the links between them, they're fairly, like, they're similar. But, yeah, like, he literally cannot hold the Olympic torch. I remember being shown this footage in Year 12 because we were doing When We Were Kings, and it's, it's like, harrowing because you watch that film and you, or just you watch Muhammad Ali boxing and he's this specimen, and then you're seeing this old guy that can barely hold a torch. Have you guys seen Larry and Muhammad? Yeah, it's like he's over he's over the hill and cooked, and it's mm-hmm. like it's um, it's really interesting because like he's he's just he's not quite like he's just not quite right. Like he's not he's not moving the same way he once did. It's partly that yeah, could yeah, that's yeah. not just a concussion thing. That's partly him being too oh, old and yeah. over the hill. But it's really interesting because like they talk a lot in that film about how like him doing this fight is not a good idea because like he will do permanent damage to himself by putting himself through another fight and he's just like the ego is just like going for it like just wants it Mm. um it's a really fascinating film and they have those conversations at the end of when we were kings about how he kind of went on longer than he should have and you can see the the effect of that in that video like literally it's the like youtube it if you're listening because it's like it's just outright scary to see that if you brought it out though and i know 
like CT and concussion are super scary because it's the mental aspect. But we, like professional athletes exploit their bodies all the time. So like, we're talking about head knocks and things, but players will go and take jabs so they can get through a game, and their and like their arms about to fall off, or you know the, the number of the number of professional AFL players that aren't, aren't, aren't able to walk or have to have their have to have their joints fused. In, well, in the Chris, future in that Chris kind of Judd, stuff. I think the great one was like he can't put his arms over his head. Hmm. Like how do he? Like, so in terms of quality of life, I think I think there needs to be a greater discussion around. It. So like yeah, everyone's very strict on concussion, and but like really, if it, if you come to the quality of life and the respect of a of a professional or just any athlete's body and the impact it has on the rest of their life, it really should be like you know if you're not fit to take the field, you're not fit to take the field, and that can be. You know, coming back from an ACL, like coming back from a PCL, like coming back from a corky, like and all those things. Like if we mm. if we're getting serious as a society about the the cost, the physical cost of sport, that's kind of like where you need to go. Because as much as um, like trauma related depression and stuff is a thing, the depression of just having like constant pain is is huge as well. Especially if you've exploited your body that 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 far for you know fifteen twenty years. Yeah, I. So my father's a really interesting, like he's had, he was knocked out and had pretty much forgot everything riding a horse at 16. And that has, he pretty much had to relearn everything in a couple of years to get through school. Mm. Um, so he was going to be a vet um, and that never, that never happened. He's had a, he's had a, he's had a good life. He's also recently had two knee replacements and a hip replacement. Yep. Um, so it's interesting to compare the two things. And whilst he certainly doesn't have the same ability he once had, I would say that cognitive, I would, without like saying one's worse than the yeah, other, yeah, yeah. The, that cognitive load in terms of what it did for his ability to achieve the things he wanted in his life, I think that had a really significant disruption, was mm. a really significant disruption. I don't think, and I think when you're thinking about brain injuries, and physical injuries, I think there's always a degree of knowledge that you can grit and bear the physical injuries because that's just one aspect of your body, whereas your brain is interacting with the entirety of your yeah, body. Yeah. And so I think that's really important distinguishing factor to why, for why people find um, CTE and concussions so frightening in comparison to other physical injuries, Isn't even though that, yeah, they're both like both are going to cause significant physical damage. There's no no disputing yeah, yeah. that. But I think that's the factor that's the most terrifying thing for me is that I can't do – it doesn't matter whether I'm super fit or not. Like my body – my bra- if my brain gives way on me, mm. I'm not going to be able to function anyway. So my my body parts don't even matter once you're like your brain cooked. Like it, it, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the most frightening thing. I think the interesting thing, and this is NFL-specific topic, is that Simmons versus Gladwell piece where they were essentially discussing this and the idea that most sports have like a secondary conversation to the, the main conversation of like who's winning. But with the NFL at the moment, there's like nine of them. There's concussion and then there's kneeling and then there's a whole raft of other ones. And I don't I don't necessarily think that the AFL is at a point where this is a huge second conversation. I don't think it's at the same point here that it is in the NFL, possibly because of the just the design of the games and the relative size of the issue. Yeah, not at all. I think I'd actually be interested to know what you think the secondary conversation of AFL is. Because I think it's still quite it's a whole other people's question. Yeah, it's it's a very clouded environment, but I don't think there's not there's. I think we're just more aware of concussion in general, um, and we're very medically progressive in Australia anyway. So I think we're just aware of it, but I don't think it's a major issue. I don't think I don't think like it's still a huge participation sport with kids. Kids are still playing Oz Kick. They're still coming up junior ranks. That yeah, kind of thing. and I think I think That's the other thing actually to interject. Yeah. Go on. I would say the the problem with AFL. Is that, and this is this is why, I think we sometimes mistake it, mistakenly think it's not as much of a problem as it is, is because we too often associate what's happening at the elite level as something that just trickles down to mm. the bottom of the game. So I'd be cautious in saying 
in saying the game's risky or not risky based on what happens in an elite environment because there's certain you have medical best practice in an elite environment you have support in an elite environment you have after you have employers who have duty of care mm. contracts in an elite environment not to say you don't get some of those things or all of those things in amateur environments but certainly they're much more varied and absolutely yeah yeah and i think I think if you were to say, if there was a second conversation to be associated with concussion in the AFL, it's what policy, how policy is executed at the ground level because it's like the AFL sets one policy for the entire competition. It runs to all the other competitions um, and it, then it doesn't, it just sort of, it's up to those competitions to enforce it or not enforce it and clubs adopt it on a fairly ad hoc basis. Some clubs are really good at adopting it. As I said, my club, I certainly think at no point was I mistreated or mismanaged. I think any, if anything, I probably just needed to be a little bit more forthcoming on occasions about my symptoms. But I guess the thing is other clubs, certainly I've been in rooms where people are like, if someone, what if someone's just gets hit in the head and they're dopey normally, should I just send them back out on the field to play? So like, <laughs> you know, um, like those kinds of questions like where there's just a complete misunderstanding of what concussion actually does to someone. And I think that's to me the more frightening thing is that whilst there's an awareness growing around concussion is that no one's going to be able to actually articulate the damage that's being done to players over an extended period of time at community level because no one's no one cared up until 10 years ago mm. what that damage looked like. So it's very difficult to, um, if that's, if there was a second conversation to be had around concussion, I'd say that's where it comes from, not from the elite level, because I think the AFL, to their credit, has at least been on the front foot about managing those risk factors. The The other question, that you, other second conversation around concussion you could have is about the, the general danger of the game, but I think that's something that's more of a broader philosophical question than something that's going to resolve in any decisive policy measure from the AFL right now. Yeah. So that kind of raises two questions. Uh, the first one, at a community level, do you think that it should just be like they take up boxing's approach and it's like if you have a head knock, you don't come back and you take like, you take the compulsory week off. Like you have an actual – it's not a test. It's not up to volunteers to decide if you're cognitive, cognitively fit. It's just that you suffered a head knock. We know that there's too much danger involved to get it wrong, so you miss the rest of the game and you miss a week. Like, would you be happy to see that at community level? Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Like, I mean, it, there was a player who's probably going to play who did get a head knock on the weekend and he was actually probably cleared to come. He would have been cleared to come back on, but trainer decided against it, coach decided against it. He'll probably play next week. But like, even in that situation where it wasn't on the scale of a concussive head knock, there was still a decision to keep him out of the game because they'd won the game. They were, they were in a good enough position within the game that it didn't matter whether he played or not. There was no point. So... Um, they looked after him, even though, well, even if it wasn't on a concussion, but definitely on a concussive level, yeah, week off makes sense. Yeah. Just like, but I guess that's why you have to legislate for that sort of thing. Because if he's only missing the second half of that game because you're not, you know, you're comfortably in front, that's not the situation you want. No, so you want you want those things to be mandatory so but that you don't go. I should add that that insight came from the player and not from that ca anecdote came from the player and not from the coach mm, or mm. the trainer. So the trainer and coach probably would have not let him go on regardless, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important. That was just his impression. That was his impression. Yeah. So that's and that's that's the that's the only version of that story that I've held, which is also really important I think to note who tells the stories in these situations because I think players will tell you one thing, but I think those outside will also give different accounts yeah. as well. Yeah. And then yeah. so the second point of that was you had that that philosophical question about the danger of sport and in this case AFL, do you think that like physicality and ferocity around a contest is is crucial to what makes Australian rules football Australian rules football? Because that's the debate they have in NFL. They go, if we take out the physicality and the almost like the recklessness of, of violence in, in NFL, it loses its appeal. Like like that's what we we liked seeing big hits. Like, because at, at the essence, the NFL became more about that than it did become about a quarterback throwing the the oval shaped ball to a wide receiver. If we went bruise free for footy, is it still footy? To me, the fact that we have a game that doesn't rely on tackling is central to its appeal. So my question would be: Is there a way we can reduce the continue to reduce the significance of that within the game, given that the best aspects of the game 
don't involve that necessity of contact. I think it's a part of the game, but I don't think it's crucial to the game. So that would be my answer to your question. Like, I mean, my favourite players were like Grant Birchall and Andrew Gaff, which probably sums up the way I like to play my mm. football. I mean, my actual is probably Jack Rewalt, who quite ironically got concussed on the weekend. But that was malicious rather than... Again, acc- and acc- again, acc- I'd say a player that does tackle, but doesn't. I don't think it's like a crucial. Player. No, he's not a contested ball player. But so I then, think the extension there, I think, is if you go back. So there's a lot of this year's second narrative has, for, by the mainstream media has been that this that football's in crisis or football's not not as good as it once was. And I think I, when people talk about peak football, some go back to the '80s. But I think the the the, the O's, so that Brisbane Lions trilogy, is probably what most people consider to be kind of peak football and those characters you have like as like Michael Voss and Nathan Buckley, like midfielders that were that were probably bigger than what they are now and very ferocious. If if that's our benchmark, do you see that changing as we go through generations? Do you think like the current generation is gonna be is more willing to watch the Bontempelli's, the Trelaws of the world, as opposed to wanting to see more Vosses and Buckleys and because the ironic part is that the ones who are coaching, so like Hardwick is a hard, like you watch him go back, watch his tapes. He's a hard footballer, a tackle first and loves tackling. Westfold as well. Westfold as well. Buckley, the Scott brothers, the custodians of the game, which are the coaches in all sense and purposes, because they select the teams and they create the tactics. They came. They come from a time where yeah, the game was probably way more physical. So do we, do you see that transitioning out, or are they the ones that kind of hold on to like that aspect of the game? I think it's. I think what's most interesting about the debate about football this year is a lot of it has come down to congestion and space and the results. The interest in, to me is the debate between the Scott, I think it's Brad Scott and Nathan Buckley on what we should do about holding the ball and punishing the tackler or and punishing the person who has the ball. Buckley's come down on the side of punishing the person who has the ball Um straight away so if they're tackled and the ball jars loose holding the ball no matter where, whether you've had prior intent which to me is just like it goes against the spirit of the game to punish the person who wins the ball like the person who wins the ball to my mind is always the person you should look after first and foremost however there is like certainly there needs to be maybe a line drawn in terms of releasing the ball and then you have brad scott who on the other hand is like no no we need to come down on the site we don't reward the ball player enough and give them enough opportunity to get the ball free so therefore we have this kind of nil old scrum at the moment where the ball doesn't get free because they're not going to get punished for tackling the player we already punish players for ducking their heads into tackles because that way we consider that prior opportunity when in some cases it's just a player trying to avoid getting their head taken off which i don't think is like an unreasonable thing to do in the circumstances as much as we hate it as spectators Mm. it's self-preservation yeah. is not to be frowned upon because prevents these conversations it prevents yeah. these conversations from happening and it's probably one thing that people have underestimated about the durability of football in the midst of this kind of discussion so i think sure these gatekeepers i think these gatekeepers are more willing to change than we think i just think if you make a rule change they'll adapt they're all smart like alistair clarkson's a smart man adam simpson's a smart man john longmire's a smart man i'd say don pike smart smart man as well damien hardwick smart man these these guys are coaches those are probably for my mind the five best coaches in the league at the moment as well in terms of like sustained success or sustained runs of teams like the eagles have only missed the eight once in simpson's senior hawk clarkson's record speaks for itself longmire's record speaks for itself these are all and Hardwick's record ability to turn around a team speaks for itself as well. So I think these are all coaches that know how to ride the different rule changes that they've been subject Mm. to year to year. So I think the game will be fine regardless of what they have thrown at them. I just think the game needs to take account of what greater account of what the players probably want and give them certainty about what they're doing so they can adjust their actions to the appropriate level of care that we as spectators expect and the league wants and the players themselves want. So how annoyed do you get when you see, for example, like we suspend someone like Nat Nui or we suspend someone for a, an act that concusses someone? How annoyed do you get when there's sort of the scrum against that? Like footy's gone soft. 
How much does that annoy you? I think the discussion on the Natanui case was predicated on a, f- a couple of flawed assumptions and that, that Natanui had no other choice in the matter and that B, Natanui had had prior warning about his actions to that point, which he didn't. So to my mind, the action itself was Natanui didn't unsafe tackle, but Natanui also probably didn't have enough time to realistically, given the force of momentum you have, which is just, I know this is debated, but he, mm. he made an attempt to turn Amon. It wasn't a successful attempt, but he did make somewhat of an attempt to turn him, maybe not to the degree that we wanted. So that's the first factor. The other factor of the Natanui tackle that's kind of really, that gets forgotten. He did the same tackle to Nick Smith in round one, one a holding the ball, free kick, kicked a goal from it. Did the same tackle to Brendan Parfitt in round three, hold, uh, ball up, wins a stoppage for his team. I think it was in a defensive defensive Eagles 50. So, you know, crucial tackle at an important part of the game. So no warning from AFL House in those first two scenarios. So I don't know how you can pretend to be sincere about addressing tackles like that because all, all three of those tackles were brutal tackles and all three of them had the risk of a head, a head knock attached to it. So... If you're just going to judge it based on the outcome, that's a flawed approach because someone's already been concussed at the end of it. You, you could have made that ruling after the first time you saw it, get in touch with him, say, Nick, this isn't the right thing to do or there's a better way of going about it. Instead, you wait till he does it which when it actually hurts someone and then punish him for it without prior warning given that within the within the confines of the rules, it's actually not that unreasonable what he did. Mm. So Mike, and as a supporter, I'm not just saying this because I'm a West Coast mm. supporter, I actually think in an ideal world he would have got fined for that because they haven't given him a prior warning. Um, but I think I think this talk about the game going soft is ridiculous. Like there was a failure of duty of care there, but also I think there was a failure of duty of care on the part of the AFL because they simply waited until there was a, a moment where they could go, "Hey, you've actually done something where there's a clear clear failure." They would have they showed those highlights of those Nat and Nui tackles all over the place probably. You know, especially the Nick Smith tackle in round one. I remember seeing that all over the news when he did that massive tackle. So people are willing to show this as highlight reels when no one gets hurt. But as soon as someone gets hurt, it's like, oh, let's take a step back. But you're rewarding the same action. I think like saying the game's gone soft is typical like crisis merchant sort of setup that we've already spoken about. And there's sort of obviously with everything that we now know, it's just a kind of a case of get with the times for me. Like the Nat Nui one was one like I had to agonise. I agonised over because as a supporter of the Eagles, it's like, oh yeah, I really want him out there. But at the same time, like, yeah, it's a dangerous. It was dangerous. Like, there's no doubt about it. Um, but I don't think it's dangerous in the sense that the game, that what he did was against the spirit of the game. I think it was an accident. I think like if you want players to change their action, you need to like you need to be in active dialogue with that playing group. You can't just you know, bring out the stick when you, you see something you don't like. Yeah. You need to have a consistent set of rules or policies. And frankly, our legislation for the laws of the game is in completely inadequate for addressing these kinds of things because it relies so much on selective interpretation and the views of a match review officer. In this case, one person and in the past, three people. So, um, and that's, and those interpretations have changed from year to year. So, I mean, yeah. like that's the problem, not, not, not whether the, um, the tackle was wrong or not. Of course, the tackle wasn't the right tackle, but there's no been no clear guidelines set. And I think for me, my frustrations on the failure to do those things, because it's like you're already halfway there, but there's this fear of diluting the brand by changing the rules to make a more inclusive game. Like, I'd love to be able to run out there still, but it's like simply too unsafe for me to go out there. So I'd to me, it's fundamentally, whilst it's a dangerous game and I accept some risk, I think there's ways we can mitigate the risk to a point where it's not so not such an unacceptable risk for someone like myself to go out there because I don't think like I'm a I'm a risky player. I never half of my concussions have come from situations where I was just unlucky rather than like you know, but some of them have come from situations where you know, so no one needs to run in with an elbow up. No one needs to run in with like. No one needs to take someone out behind the ball. Like those are things which, you know, can be protected against in the game and should be protected against. So, yeah, and it, it goes and 
it, it will increase the, the reach of football as well. So if the AFL wants to become truly the dominant sport in Australia, you want to go against the homogenization of the physique of a player. Because as you said at the start of this conversation, it is, you know, 190 centimeters, 90 kilos, like is the baseline now. And a lot of people aren't that. And so if you make it, mm. yeah, if you make this a safer game in inverted commas, or just a more responsible one where there is a duty of care for, yeah, for the, for every player on the field, you can have, you know, more Caleb Daniels. You can have yeah, more yeah. really skinny bean poles, your, your Tom Englishes of the world, and that kind of thing. You don't get this, everyone's exactly the same, everyone's own position as a player. You get what the crisis merchants want, which is, you know, a full forward and a midfielder and a winger and a halfback and a fullback and whatever. So, yeah, doing this will actually solve some of the other problems I think the AFL's facing as well. So my final sort of questions to you, Ben. Does it grate on you that you can't play anymore? Do you like, do you, I don't know if you feel sorry for yourself, but how pissed off does it make you and what do you specifically miss about not being able to play? I'm going to defer partly to my friend and colleague, Sam Fleming, who appears on this audio documentary work I've been doing. And he won a premiership with St. Bernard's before he came to West Brunswick. Mm. And he was saying to me, he goes, if I hadn't have won a premiership with St. Bernard's, I'd probably still be playing like that. And he said, he just goes, that's a huge carrot. And I would say, having been part of, I don't think it matters what grade of premiership you win. And my premiership was a reserves premiership, but we were undefeated for the whole year as well. And having walked away with that achievement as part of a team, like it makes it very easy for me to walk away from the game being like, I've done something really incredible with a group of people some of whom are my best friends still, and I can just walk away from it and be like, it's okay, like, the game has been a bit merciless to me today, and I can kind of be like, I can look back, eventually I'm going to be able to look back on that and be like, I've still got this thing that was a really incredible achievement um, attached to it, and even though I probably part of getting that achievement meant I probably didn't look after myself the best way I could. don't think that makes it worthwhile, but I do think that achievement is like was a very sweet moment in my life. Like, um, I spent a month, like, that was the year the Eagles made the grand final as well, and that was, like, the best month of my life. Peak. Best month of my life until they lost to the Hawthorne. And, like, literally, you know, my friends, I there was, like... The seniors premiership was also also on that day, so they won by two points and we won by 90 in a romp. So it was like quite literally one of the best, best days in that football club's history. Mm. And like, just, I was like, it was like, I mean, I hadn't done, I haven't done drugs in a long time, but it was like being like, it was like being on ecstasy for a month. Like, and it was like, it was just like the warmth and happiness of being amongst a group of people that had achieved something special together. Um, yeah, it was just incredible. And so I've always got that at the moment and being able to stop before the game threatens to just damage me long-term means I still get that. And I think that's worth holding on to. And I also think even if I hadn't have got that, I've still got equivalent sorts of experiences mm. that aren't premierships as well. It doesn't. It's not just a premiership. You get experiences like that, just winning a game you're not meant to yeah. or like just enjoying the company of other people. Um, and the other thing is, is you can still be involved in football without playing it. Like I think people underestimate the role of volunteering. Um, I get the really great privilege now of like, I don't, I actually hate umpiring. Like I probably won't do it beyond this year, but I love doing boundary umpiring and running messages. And like, I mean, on the weekend I rode 30 Ks out to Chadston to do on the pushy to do the fours messaging. And then I rode over to Campbellwell to do the boundary for the women's seniors. And like, and then I rode by the club rooms because I was cooked. So I needed to stop and get some snacks <laughs> on the way home. So I stopped by and chatted to the guys. There's the seniors ones and twos after their game and then headed home. And that was like a really nice day. It was a 20, 19 degree day. It was sunny. I got to go to like three games of amateur football and hang out with a bunch of mates across three different grades who I really like. And I'm still involved in the club in a really meaningful way. So, yeah, I get frustrated, but, like, because I can't play. And, I mean, I get frustrated when I watch, especially the lower-grade teams lose because I'm still fit, really fit, so I can still probably play at a low-grade level quite easily. But beyond that, like, I certainly get what I 
you know, I get something quite enjoyable still as a volunteer that doesn't replace game, but doesn't replace the thrill of playing, but is a different kind of pleasure and a different kind of satisfaction. And do you think, speaking from your neuropsychologist's perspective, you've managed to dodge long-term effects by quitting when you did? Never say never. That's I think that's a really foolish thing to say. Yeah. Um, but I think my neurologist was very confident that if I stopped when I did, there's very little risk of um, a long-term a bad long-term prognosis. So um, I'm quite confident it'll be fine. But you know, you never know. Like, I mean, who really knows? But you can't like stress about that either. Like, you know, I could get dementia, Alzheimer's anyway. You know what I mean? Like, those things can happen whether whether or not I like it like it or not so um you know i don't i can't i can't i try not to think about that but like i don't think i really i think because i made the call at the right time um or made the call at a time where it was right on that pivot point before like this becomes a stupid hobby as opposed to just a hobby that is a dangerous hobby where like you know there's like doing something that's risky and then doing something that's stupid and i think that i stopped before it became that line um, where I stopped right on that line, I think that probably sums it up. Like, once you get to one a year, I think it's like a really good rule. Like, once you're averaging about one a year, that's the rule that most doctors use for a lot of concussions, one a year. So, I was, once I hit that threshold, I think I made the right call. So that's like that was that was pretty much my main reason as well to stop is that I hit that threshold and I was like, okay, I need to have a look at this and see what's actually happening. It wasn't easy to explain. I was just waiting on the platform Trying to keep out of the rain That's what you get When you're waiting 